We're just going to go on an adventure through this portion together. I'll point out some highlights to you. I'll share some practical applications that I can see, some of the deeper lessons. It's going to be fun. Let's look at the book of Mark together first. <laughs> there's, there's a dynamic in here that's easy to gloss over. And I think it's actually kind of funny. <laughs> um, tradition is very strong in people. We all know that. When we have traditions, it's, it's hard to break a tradition. Um, we have, a, for example, Simon Peter. He had a very strong Jewish tradition, which was not biblical, to not eat with Gentiles. We all remember that. And so when the time came for him to go into the house of Cornelius and communicate the good news to Cornelius, he wasn't going to do it. And it took, it took this encounter with the Holy Spirit and a full-on vision to get the message across. So that's an example of tradition. Uh, Jewish people especially, I think, are very strong on tradition. How many of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof? Tradition. <laughs> so, here's something interesting. In the, in the uh, Jewish tradition, there are certain ways you handle like the loss of a loved one, the death of someone. And uh, these traditions are based in the Torah, and there's a lot of wisdom to them. There's some very healthy things on a psychological level that happen there. Um, one of them is when you lose someone you love, you you basically block the next week out of your life just to take off and uh, to go through that grieving process, uh, do the lamentation, etc. And uh, the Hebrew word for this is sitting shiva. Can we all say sitting shiva? Shiva is seven, so you're sitting for seven days. And uh, this was a very strong tradition a couple thousand years ago. So think about this for a second. The disciples just lost their beloved rabbi. They, they watched him crucified and expire. So what were they doing for the next seven days? They were sitting shiva. So they have, uh, they have the, the women coming to them and saying, the master's alive, we saw him. And uh, what's the response? Nothing. So take a look at this with me here. We only see this in the book of Mark. We've been examining how Mark is a more personal account. It has some things in it that Matthew and Luke leave out. Mark chapter 16, verse, verse uh, 14 it says, afterward, he appeared to the leaven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And what did he do? He actually reproached them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they hadn't believed those who'd seen him after he had risen. So the picture we get here is, man, God works with people who have problems and who don't get it sometimes. And how encouraging is that? I mean, here's Yeshua, risen from the dead. It's like the triumphant pinnacle of history. And he can't even get his guys to go up to Galilee like they'd agreed on so he can appear to them. So what does he do? He has to appear to them and scold them for being so hard-hearted and not believing what he said and send them up to Galilee. <laughs> just, we'll just look at that for a second here too. Chapter 16, verse 7. The, uh, this, uh, this young man... The angel wearing white, he appears and he says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him. So they send this message by the, with the women and they, the apostles just don't get it. They're still in Jerusalem. So he just appear to them. So that encourages me that we have a creator who works with us. We can be real people. Yes, we have failings. And yes, we have problems. And yes, he's transforming us. But there's a lot of room to express patience and forbearance uh, with each other. Uh, we have a very bright outlook as a people. So that's kind of a, a humorous thing from that. Um, Yeshua is alive from the dead. 
that basically takes us from 2,000 years ago to now. It's like we finish the book, and all of a sudden, we pan forward to the present. And he's still alive, he's still accessible, he is still a teacher who's available to teach us the word, he still calls us to discipleship, uh, he still offers that power to empower us in our discipleship, and in proving that he is alive from the dead to the world, and in reaching the world with the Father's love. And uh, I thought it was cool, the signs that he gave. And I wanted to look at, look at those signs with you. Now, you know, there's a very deep spiritual aspect to our relationship with God, and I love that, but there's also a physical aspect that I think sometimes we forget about. Uh, we're not just disembodied spirits. We're spiritual people who live in bodies. And some of us, I think, are more spiritually oriented. We think more in those terms. Some of us are more physically oriented, and that's good too. So, for instance, some of us, for some of us, when we're worshiping and we're singing, that's what does it for us. Like, we just have an awesome connection time when we sing. But for some of us, when we actually dance, that's when we really feel like we connect with God. Like, we just, we just feel that kinesthetic expression. And, uh, I, we, we see that with the whole signs theme. And I wanted to explain to you a little about the original Jewish concept of signs. Because, like Paul said, Jews seek for signs. <laughs> There's something about signs that Jew- Jewish people have understood historically. Um, a sign is something in the space-time dimensions. It's either an object in space, or it's a block of time in, in the dimension of time. And it's a picture of a spiritual reality. It's like you could almost say a connection point between the lower physical dimensions that we live in in the higher spiritual dimensions. Like, we live in a real world, but there is an ultimate reality in the spiritual world that God lives in. And we have a spirit through which we interact with Him. I, I love the mechanics of that. And uh, signs are, are very cool for that because they're like concrete pictures. Some of us are better at thinking like in abstract terms. I can think in abstract terms, but sometimes it's painful. I have to admit, I really, I, I think more in concrete terms. Uh, I think especially if you're in the business world, you, you have to learn to think in concrete terms. You think about the bottom line. You think about end results. You think about practical matters. And there's a place for that in our discipleship. Um, so we have the spiritual element, and then we have signs. And the signs are more things for people who are hands-on, who are concrete thinkers, who are practical. They're kind of like object lessons for those of us who function on that level. And I'm one of those people, so I really like the whole sign theme. Um, something cool about the word sign is it, in Hebrew is that it literally means like a connection point. Uh, the Hebrew word is ot. Can we all say ot? Just imagine a bowl full of um, oats in the morning, right? And you're eating your oats, okay? So each of them is a little sign that if you eat them, you'll be nourished that day. I don't know. That's really abstract, sorry. But... <laughs> So I mean, I'm a language teacher, so I always try and think of memory pegs, right? If you can think of something better, please do. But um, anyway, it's a really, uh, okay, it's like the word is spelled with three Hebrew letters. And if we were to spell it in, with the equivalent Greek letters, we would spell it alpha and omega, okay? If you were to spell the Hebrew word for sign in Greek, you would spell it alpha and omega. In Hebrew, of course, we spell it aleph and tav. That's the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So, you know, when you have the Messiah saying, I'm the alpha and the omega... If he indeed did speak in Hebrew to his Hebrew-speaking disciple John in the book of Revelation, which he might have done, uh, then he would have said, I'm the Aleph and the Tav. Either way, to the believers in the first century, who were, you know, avid Torah scholars, and they understood these things, 
When they would see the word for sign all through the Bible, they would think of, how is this point to Messiah? Because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Aleph, the Tav. He's the sign. And interestingly enough, it does say in the book of Isaiah that the ultimate sign that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would give would be the Messiah himself. Yeshua is the living sign. But there are other ones throughout the scriptures. And I wanted to take a brief overview of them because we, as, we, as we look at them from Genesis on, we get this broader picture of the signs of a true disciple that, uh, that Yeshua listed in Mark chapter 16. In uh, Genesis chapter 9, we're given the sign, the oat, of the rainbow. It's a sign that the movie 2012, for those who saw it, will never happen. The, the world will never again be flooded with water. So every time you can see the rainbow, you can remind yourself that the movie 2012 is uh, fictitious, as refer- is referring to the future. Okay, um, Genesis chapter 17, uh, the people of Israel circumcising their sons on the eighth day, that was called a sign. Again, it's a physical thing, which is a sign of something spiritual, a reminder. Uh, in the book of Exodus chapter 13, we read that celebrating the festival of unleavened bread, when we clean all of the uh, puffy bread and all the leavened products out of our house for that week during uh, April or around then, that is a sign. And interestingly enough, it says there that it is to be a sign, a mark, on our forehead and on our right hand. The next time that language turns up is in the book of Revelation in reference to the beast system. So we learn that this sign, whatever it is that the unleavened bread represents when we do this, it's antithetical to whatever it is that the mark of the beast is going to represent in the future. Uh, also we learn in Exodus chapter 13 that the ceremony of redeeming the firstborn son, which I've explained to you from the Sidur, the Jewish prayer book, that is also a sign. I'm looking forward to having our firstborn son so I can do that. It is an awesome picture of the redemption we have in Messiah. And it doesn't involve animal sacrifices, just in case you want it. Don't worry. Um, chapter 31 of the book of Exodus mentions Shabbat, the weekly Sabbath as a sign. It says that it is a sign of the Brit Olam, the everlasting covenant that God has with his people. He says it's something that we can celebrate throughout our generations. So that also is a sign. I, I like that one because the ones that we've been looking so f- at so far are visual signs that are objects in space. You know, the rainbow, circumcision, uh, unleavened bread. But this one is an object in time. It's literally, it's the sign that we're living in right now. There's this 24-hour block of time every week that we come into, and it's a sign. It's a very cool concept. Um, if you're into like thinking on a more metaphysical level. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says that tefillin, uh, phylacteries as they call them in the Greek, that these are a sign. Uh, how many of you ever seen like observant Jewish males who, who bind their, their phylacteries, their tefillin on? Okay, yeah. I have a set and I, I put them on once a week and it's a very cool sign of my covenant devotion to God. Um, so those are some of the signs that we see in the, in the Tanakh. And they, they set the context for Yeshua talking about signs in Mark chapter 16 with regards to our mission. So our mission is simple. Go into all the world. We've done a good job. We've made it all the way from Israel to Saskatchewan, which is almost the end of the earth, if you ask me. I think we're almost falling off the map here. And uh, then this, it's simple, like, proclaim the good news, um, bring people the message. Uh, and then there are two re- prerequisites here. He talks about belief and baptism. 
uh, often if we come from certain streams in, in evangelicalism, uh, baptism is almost treated as optional. It's kind of like, well, you know, if you feel like being baptized, then that's a good idea. And, you know, if, whenever you, whenever you want to do that, well, maybe you can do that. But, uh, the early believers were a little more adamant about it. Their idea was, okay, you believe in Yeshua? We're taking you down to the water right now and you're going in. Um, we have some examples of that with Philip. He said, what's, what's to stop me from being baptized? There's some water. Let's do this thing. And uh, that's something also in our congregation. Uh, if you haven't been immersed in water, as an expression of your faith, I strongly encourage you to do that. Come talk to me after. It would be great if we could even do that before Passover. That's an important expression of our, our faith in Messiah. And also, what circumcision was to the Abrahamic covenant, Paul said baptism is to the new covenant. So it's an, it's an important dynamic. And uh, he goes on to say there's some... There's some uh, cool supernatural phenomena that accompany believers. Uh, casting out demons, uh, speaking with new languages, picking up serpents and drinking deadly poison and not hurting them. By the way, I, I think when he's talking about snakes and poison and stuff, he's not saying, like, go out and do this stuff. I think he's saying, like, if someone tries to assassinate you by slipping some poison into your drink, it's not going to affect you. And that's going to be a powerful testimony to whoever it was that is trying to assassinate you. Uh, there was that dynamic in the first century, and there's continued to be that since then. Um, also, they'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. So, these again, these are all physical signs that point to the creator of the universe. These are things that happen in this tangible world that we live in that point to a higher power, our God who sent his Messiah to save the world. So that hopefully that gives you kind of a contextual understanding of signs. And some of these things I haven't experienced very much of. Like, I, I, I've never, for instance, I've never spoken in a different language other than English and, you know, the heavenly expression that some people would call tongues or whatever. I've experienced that. But I've never, I really like to be able to walk up to some people, let's say, who just immigrated to Saskatchewan from, let's say, Iraq. I'd like to be able to walk up to them and speak like Arabic to them. Or or I, I would have loved to like talk to our midwife who is from Iran and just speak fluent Farsi to her, like on the spot. Just think about this about the sign that would be that whoever it is that you're connected with spiritually must be the real thing. I, I haven't experienced that yet and I, I want to. Um you know some of us have laid hands on people and occasionally they've recovered and that's good, but I just I, I feel in this area that there's more to it than what we've experienced so far. And that's something I, I want to press in with you all for to experience the power of Elohim in our lives to a greater degree. Because Yeshua is alive. He's sitting at the Father's right hand. He has a load of power there. And he wants to express it. So, and reach the, reach Prince Albert and reach Saskatchewan. Okay. Let's look at the parsha together. You can turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 35. Yeah. Well, the remainder of that passage that's somewhat contested, uh, most of the elements are reflected in the other gospels. So we know it's historically accurate. And also, it could have been that Mark was, like many believers, on the run, and he just wasn't able to finish his gospel. So it could be, just like Moses didn't finish the Torah, it was the hand of Joshua that finished the Torah. Um, Mark did most of his gospel, and then one of his colleagues finished it for him. That's probably the, the dynamic that happened. Personally, I like the end of the book of Mark. I'm willing to keep the whole thing. <laughs> okay, so Exodus chapter uh, 35 um, how many of you read our Hebrew Word of the Week email from Holy Language, my Hebrew teaching organization? Okay, for those of you who didn't, I can, I can forward it to you. 
later. Or you can check it out on our fan page on Facebook for our Holy Language Institute. It's just called the Classical Hebrew. That's the fan page, Classical Hebrew. We post them on there. So if you want, you can check that out. The, the word we covered this week was a word that pops up in the first chapter. It made me so happy to read this chapter. I mean, last week was the golden calf fiasco. I mean, the whole nation almost got wiped out. It was sad, embarrassing. It wasn't like the happiest ending. Even though Moses did secure uh, forgiveness for the people, and even though he did like secure a renewal of the covenant, which I think is cool, because that's a picture of the new covenant right there, um, it still was, a, you know, there were some low points last week in the readings. But this week is awesome. It's like a new start. Uh, you just see the people responding with such enthusiasm. Like, they're just so willing to give and give. And, and finally, the workmen say, Moses, call them off. They're giving too much. <laughs> uh, they were, where there's like, dive a hotel. It's enough and more than enough. And I, I, that just, I found that so refreshing. Isn't that a new covenant dynamic also? I thought it was cool that we saw that in the Torah also. Just like, just the Father's invitation and just responding in freedom and just coming to him with a willing heart. You just find yourself almost overtaken by that enthusiasm. I, I love that dynamic. Um, there, there are several places where it talks about their, them having a willing heart or their hearts moved them, uh, their hearts stirred them. I'll just list, list the references here. Uh, 35 verse 5. 35 verse 21, 35 verse 22, 35 verse 29, 35 also verse 21 and 26. So it has a whole bunch of times where it mentions that. And uh, I, I won't go into all the practical applications of that lesson. I already, Like I said, uh, we already had that with the Hebrew Word of the Week email. But that just sets the tone for this parasha. And I do want to point out a couple other places where that Hebrew root word for that response is, is mentioned. That re- the response there is the, the word uh, nadav in Hebrew. Can we all say nadav? That means like like a generous uh, response or a free will contribution or just that spontaneous enthusiasm. That's like the word nadav. And it comes up in a couple interesting places. In uh, uh, Tehillim or Psalm chapter 51 verse 12, David is praying and he says, Sustain me with a willing spirit. And the word there for willing is nadav, sustain me with a ruach nadiva. Um, that's a great prayer to pray. It means more than just willing. There's something that just picks you up and carries you on in the great plan of the Father for your life. Um, also in uh, or Tehillim, in uh, the book of Psalms, chapter uh, Psalm 111, verse 3, I believe it is. It says, your people are willing on the day of your power. I love this psalm. It's such a messianic psalm. And it's great poetry, too. And it says, your people will be willing... That word there again is nadav, nadavot, on the day of your power. Psalm 110. Thank you, Colin. Yeah. So that's another place where it turns up. And uh, <laughs> there's one more that I really liked. We can look at it together. It's in the book of Judges, chapter 5. Like Deborah and Barak singing together after uh, <laughs> routing their foes and after Yael does in with the general of the army. And in chapter 5, verse 2, it says that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless Yahweh. Isn't that cool? That the leaders led in Israel, bless Yahweh. That the people volunteered, bless Yahweh. And uh, the word there for volunteered, of course, is that same word, nidavot. So it's when, it's such a blessing 
When the people of Israel, when God's people are, they, they respond enthusiastically to Him. When they respond in the freedom of the Spirit. When they just say yes to Him. And uh, go above and beyond even uh, His call. Um, the, also, the word there for leaders there is interesting. It's the word for when a Nazarite would grow his hair really long and wild. It's the same word for leader there, okay? So I'm going to give you a couple of paraphrases for kind of to give you the fuller, defini- the fuller definition. Uh, in Hebrew it says, Bifroah praot b'Yisrael. And uh, the, the root there is para. And it, it means like that the leaders cut loose. Bless Yahweh. That the wild men were wild. Bless Yahweh. That the men were uncontrollable. Bless Yahweh. That's the connotation there. And of course, there is a, there is a time and a place for that dynamic. And in this case, it was the battle scene. Um, just the people moving together and uh, working as a unit. And that is a blessing. <laughs> so, that was, that's kind of the tone of this parsha. And I wanted to couple, look at a couple specifics with you all. These are messianic, messianic, uh, parallels. We're gonna look at how Moses was a picture of Messiah. Um, the, the key thought here is the Torah, more than anything, is the account of how God came to dwell in the midst of his people, in his glory. It's the account of how God came, his, his presence came tangibly. Uh, we learned a couple of weeks ago where he said, the reason for the historical exodus from Egypt, which was really the culmination of the first five books of the Bible. The reason for the historical exodus was so he could dwell in the midst of his people. Wow. So therefore, the whole point of the Torah is that part of it. This parsha that we just read. When the cloud came and it filled the tent, and his glory was so thick, people couldn't even stand. That's the height of the Torah. So therefore, the first five books of the Bible, essentially, they're a roadmap to his presence being made tangible in our midst, him coming in his glory. The Torah is a roadmap for that. And we're going to look at a couple of specifics about how that works here. Um, firstly, you know, the very first word in this parasha, uh, th- this, uh, this, this reading portion is called uh, Vayakhel, and he assembled, it's talking about Moses assembling the people of Israel, and that word there, the root of it is kahal. And it's the same word that's translated in the Greek Septuagint as ekklesia. So it says, and Moses assembled the people. It's saying Moses ekklesia the people. Of course, ekklesia is the Greek word translated church today. Um, for, yeah, so there's, there's some fascinating word studies there that I'm actually going to go into on Rosh Hodesh, on the biblical new month celebration we'll be having. I'm going to be talking about some of those connections. But that's for another time. For now, the point is, Moses assembled the people just like Yeshua assembles us as his congregation, you could say his church. That's Mo- that was Moses' job then. That's Messiah's job now. He brings us together. Um, we see a couple of cool examples of this. Acts chapter 2 verse 47 concludes by saying, and the master added daily to the number of those who were being saved. So we see that the master was doing the work. He was the one saving people. He was the one bringing his people together. Uh, we also see in the book of Matthew, Chapter 16, verse 18, he says that he is the one who will build his congregation. So just like Moses, that was Moses' job then, that is Messiah's job with his people for the last couple thousand years. And he's continued to doing that. And I don't think he's done yet. He prayed that we, as believers on the earth, would be echad, that we would be one. Just like he and his father were echad, one. And I don't see that yet. So that tells me he's still doing that work. And uh, praise his name for it. And we're just going to continue praying for that and cooperating with him. Towards that end. Yes. 
also along those lines of the Echad thing, uh, that, that, uh, that whole uh, theme pops up in this parasha also. In chapter 35, verse 13, you can look at that with me, Exodus 35, 13. Well, I'm going to tell you guys a, a problem I face every week. I read the weekly portion in Hebrew. And the verse numbering for the Hebrew portions is different than it is for the English. So I sometimes write my references in from the Hebrew and not from the English. And this can be a challenge. Okay, let's look at chapter 36, verse 13. Exodus 36, 13, it says, He made 50 clasps, clasps of gold, and he joined, and that word there, uh, Hannah, is the word chavar, from which we were, that word chavura comes, like a discipleship group, a tight unit. And he joined the curtains to one another with the clasps. Why? So that the tabernacle was a unit. The Hebrew word there for unit, who can guess what it is? The tabernacle was echad. The tabernacle was one. That's the word that Messiah prayed that we would experience in our lives. So that's one example of that. Another one is a couple of verses later in verse 18. It basically just says the same thing. He made 50 clasps of bronze to join the tent together so that it would be echad, so that it would be a unit, literally so that it would become one. And of course, we, we, we talked about how Yeshua prayed for that, for us as his body. Also, here's an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I don't know, Paul, Paul was really idealistic. Did you notice that? He was a hyper-idealist, and, and you know, that's good. We need people like that. But he, he gives this, uh, he gives this, this like a uh, mitzvah, like a commandment for the believers in Corinth, and you just think, man, like, you are expecting way too much. That is impossible. But maybe that's the point of what he says here, because we know that the things that are impossible with people are possible with him. And uh, what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 is, I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah, that you all agree, <laughs> and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete. The word there also means mature, in one mind and in one judgment or decision. Wow. Knit together. I like that. Maybe that's more the original. Yeah. So, you know, what a vision Paul had for the body of Messiah. What a vision that we can get to. Just to think that that's possible when he comes and dwells in our midst. Like, it really is his presence that brings us together. So, I, I found it really inspiring. Um, another really cool like parallel between Moses and Messiah is in chapter 40. I love chapter 40. Moses sounds like a total superman. Like, you kind of get the impression that Moses is like rushing around in like ultra high speed, like a blur, and he's setting up the curtain, and he's putting up the structure, and he's bringing all the furniture in, and he's doing it all himself. And you know, of course, he, he was overseeing the work. There were other people helping him, I'm sure. Because that would just be, that would be a, a superhuman task for one man to accomplish in one day. When you even read about how heavy those anchors were that anchored the, the outer perimeter of the tabernacle. <laughs> so, there's a lesson there too. It's that just like Moses built the dwelling place with the help of his assistants, Messiah is building the dwelling place today with the help of us, his assistants. But Messiah is going to get all the credit for it. I think maybe that's why Yeshua said in the book of Luke, you know, when it's all being said and done, this is what you say. 
we're just we're just undeserving slaves. We only did what we were commanded to do. We only did what we should have done. Maybe that's the idea, hey? With Moses and his superhuman skills here. Yeah. So that's that's another one. In in verse two and verse seventeen of chapter forty, it talks about like the, the tabernacle being set up and erected. And the Hebrew word there is the word come. And it's the same word for the resurrection, for being raised from the dead. So what, what the impression we get from that is, just like this dwelling was raised in the midst of the people of Israel, the Messiah was resurrected from the dead in the midst of the people of Israel. And it was through the resurrection that God's presence came in a powerful way. And he, he dwelt with his people tangibly. And, you know, for us as a new congregation, I never want to lose that focus. That's why we... We sing a lot of songs about Yeshua and the work he accomplished, about his death and resurrection, because that's where the power is. The power is in the gospel. And uh, yes, we are discovering our Hebrew roots. Yes, we are learning about how God's Torah applies to us today. But at the very heart of it continues to be the gospel. Our lives revolve around the gospel. Um, I might have shared with some of you this, but you know the name of our congregation, uh, Crown of Messiah, the Hebrew there is Ateret Mashiach, and did you know that the word crown means two things in Hebrew? It means crown, yes, but it means something else. And this is the one that really is close to my heart for us as a group. It means surrounding something or going around it. So, you know, the, the fact that our group is named Crown of Messiah, in Hebrew when someone hears that, what they hear is, wow, that group is all about the Messiah. Their lives revolve around Him. Their conversations, they surround Him. I, I, I even love how we get together and dance as worship. Because I can almost imagine like Yeshua in the middle and us dancing around him as the one who's brought us to life and, and saved us and the one that we're celebrating. It's kind of the idea behind Ateret Mashiach, Crown of Messiah. Here's another picture of Messiah for you all also. Uh, in chapter 35, verse 35, in chapter 38, verse 23, it talks about uh, Bezalel and Aholiav. And these two guys were craftsmen. Uh, we have a guy in our Saskatoon congregation named Dave. He... Uh, he is the owner and main operator of uh, this big auto body shop in Hague, True Colors Auto Body. And these are his favorite guys in the Bible because they're craftsmen. They work with their hands. They're, they're skilled with what they do in terms of metalwork and stuff. And, you know, that's what Dave does. So whenever I read this chapter, I always think of Dave. <laughs> um, I think many of you might have met Dave. He came up here to visit a couple of weeks ago. But that's these guys here. And uh, there's a fascinating connection between them and Messiah. Because the Hebrew word there for an artisan or like a skilled trades worker is chores. Can we all say chores? Now, interestingly enough, the Greek equivalent of this word is the word translated carpenter in the New Testament. So, where it says, for instance, in Matthew 13.55, uh, the people of Nazareth are saying, isn't this the son of the carpenter? In Hebrew they're saying, isn't this Ben, the Ben Chores, the son of the carpenter? Uh, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, they're, when they're saying, isn't this the carpenter? They're using that word. So the, the picture we get is... Ace is fire, right? Ace is fire, yeah. No, that's different. Ace is spelled with an Aleph on the front. But that's good. Keep thinking in terms of linguistic connections like that. So, anyway, the picture we get is like, yes, Yeshua was a carpenter, but that word has a broader meaning. It's like he was an artisan. He was a skilled trades worker. Just like Betzalel and Aholiab. So the, the, the image we get from that is Yeshua has been at work for the last two millennia building his people into like an awesome structure, into a beautiful creation, into uh, the kind of thing that a skilled trades worker would make, uh, an artist. 
And maybe that's why there's diversity in the body. Maybe that's why there's so much, like, uh, there are different elements. There are different tones and colors and hues. Maybe that is an expression of something deep in our Messiah's heart. There's a big difference between uniformity and unity. Some people confuse the two. Like, I'm all about unity based on Messiah and our relationship with Him, etc. But, man, I mean, forget uniformity. That just equals control and a lot of other scary things. So, that's why I really celebrate even the diversity in the Messianic movement. It's okay with me. Something cool I thought I'd share with you is, you know how Hebrew names, they're like, they sound really weird a lot of times? Like Bezalel and Ahola, whatever it is. It kind of almost sounds like alien sometimes or something. That's that's what I've heard one of my buddies say. He was like totally unchurched and he he got saved. And he's like, all of these names sound like aliens' names or something. But when you read them in Hebrew, they all have meanings. And they're a lot more interesting for one thing, but they're also like, they have meanings on a much broader level also. So I want to share with you the names of Betzalel and Aholiab. Um, Betzalel's full Hebrew name was Betzalel ben Uri ben Hor. His dad's name was Uri, and his grandpa's name was Hor. He was the guy who held up one of Moses' arms. Aaron was the guy who held up his other arm in the combat with Amalek. And uh, so Betzalel's name would mean, if you were to hear it like the meaning of it, it means like, in the shadow of God, the son of my light, the son of white linen. So when you hear these guys, you think of like someone who's in the shadow and the image of the Almighty, uh, something to do with light and something to do with white linen. That's, that's what this guy was all about. It's kind of a different feel, hey? Um, then also Aholiab, his dad's name was Ahisamach. Ahisamach. And, uh, so this guy's name means like, my, my father is my tent, the son of, my brother is a support. How would you like to name your kids things like that, eh? But it's it's interesting, though, because Betzalel's name means in the shadow of God, and Aholiab's name means like in the shelter of the Father's tent. And both of those things are very much what the tabernacle is about. Their names are prophetic. And uh, likewise, those are also reflected very strongly in Psalm 91. I think you pointed that out to me the other day, Genevieve. Yeah. So it's, it's a cool connection. Another, another connection also here with regards to the whole roadmap to the glory of God theme is, uh, why were these guys teaching? Betzalel and Aholiab. Well, the secret is given in chapter 35 verse 34. It says, cause he put it in their heart to teach. And what I get out of that is, in the body of Messiah, there's something in your heart to do in the body of Messiah. You, you are special. You are uniquely created. And there's a role that only you can play even in our congregation. And uh, something I'm looking forward to as we grow as a community is discovering each other's strengths and abilities and those deep dreams that maybe have been lying dormant for years that the Father is going to awaken and bring forth in your life. And we're here to encourage you in that and to strengthen you and to, and to cheer you on and celebrate as, as we come into what the Father is calling each of us to. So that's, that's, that's another dynamic here in this parsha. And what is the result of all these things? God comes in His glory. That's what I'm passionate about. And that's why I'm really paying attention to these things. They're like little hints along the way, hey? Um, we talked a couple weeks ago about the curtains. And they're in like the uh, female gender case in the Hebrew. And it says they were chavard to each other. And they covered the thing. And that was when it became a unit. And what we learned from that is like a healthy and strong sisterhood in a congregation is very powerful spiritually. And we just encourage you ladies like, Spend lots of time with each other. Call each other all you want. Connect. Like, 
I, I love that. It is such a blessing, and it blesses their whole congregation. And it's not like it's not like women need to be encouraged to do that either, is it? <laughs> we were joking about that a couple of weeks ago, aren't we? Uh, so that's that's a powerful thing. And then we learned about how the men were like the boards; they stand, they stand around the perimeter, and they're like this protective element in a shield. Um, the question of the week: If anyone can remember that. Is yes. What is the phrase that is most often repeated in this parasha? And the answer is, that's right. As Yahweh commanded Moses, sometimes it says, as Yahweh commanded Moses and the people of Israel. And there's a key there. If we want to experience God's presence in our life in powerful ways, sometimes obedience does precede that. Sometimes scrupulous obedience to the letter precedes Him coming in His glory. There's a part that we get to play. And there's a part that he gets to play. And uh, that's something that inspires me. It's something I think that he's calling us to grow in. So I, 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 I see from that how, even like learning how the Torah applies to us as believers today, as New Covenant believers, that is a part of preparing for his glory. Uh, John the Baptist, Yochanan the Immerser, he came before Messiah to prepare the way. He called people to repentance. He called people to get their lives right with God. And the result was like Charlotte was saying, the Messiah came and there was a powerful immersion in the experience of the Holy Spirit and God's fire in people's hearts. And that was, But that was preceded by repentance. And I, I really believe today that even with regards to the message in Messianic Judaism and the Hebrew Roots movement, it's a message calling people to return to their roots. It's a, calling, it's a message calling people to align themselves with God and His purposes, even on the lifestyle level. And I really believe that that's going somewhere. It's going to a greater and fuller experience of the Holy Spirit. And us doing many of these things that Yeshua said to do that most of us have never done. Like, I'll share with you something from my personal thought life on the drive here. Like, I've never raised anyone from the dead, eh? I, don't, I assume most of us haven't. But, like Yeshua, he did raise people from the dead, literally. Like, he would stop funeral processions in their tracks. And he would like, he would like, bring corpses to life. And everybody would like scream and they would like, their jaws would drop. And it really shook people up in a good way. And Yeshua made a promise to you. He said, the works that I've done, you're gonna do greater works than these. Because I'm going to the Father. I, like, I just, I question like, why am I not seeing it? What's going on here? I, I know there's more. And, uh, I, I, I believe that that day is coming when we're going to do things like that. I would love to interrupt a funeral and raise the person from the dead. Like seriously. I think that would be an awesome demonstration of the power of God. It would hit the media and Yeshua would get some really great fame from that. And I'm looking forward to the day when I get to do that. It's something I think about on a regular basis. So, but that doesn't happen until God's presence comes in His glory, like in the glory. And that's what we're talking about here. So that's kind of the connection. Uh, we talked for the last couple of weeks about things in the book of Exodus that God said were forever, that were to be throughout our generations. And sometimes they're the very things that the popular opinion today would say, well, those things were temporary, they're done away with, they were for a past dispensation, etc. We see one more of these this week in uh, chapter 40, verse 15. It says, The anointing on Aaron and his sons, the anointing on the Aaronic priesthood, was to be forever. It was to be throughout their generations. So it's yet another one of those. Um, here's the problem. When you speak against an anointing that God has said forever is forever, it, sometimes you can also end up speaking against the anointer. God is the one who anoints people. So, you know, 
often when we come from a Gentile background, we don't understand some things about why the temple system was installed the way it was, why there were animal offerings, things like that. And sometimes believers can almost be tempted to speak against that stuff because it was gory, because innocent animals died, you know, um, different things like this. But it's, it's best when there are things that we don't understand to just, to just be quiet on them and, and to go to the Word and to learn. Um, Paul talked about that. He said, you know, you're the wild branch. You've come from a pretty wild background and you're being grafted into the tree. So just make sure you don't get arrogant. Stay humble about this thing. And I think that's a very uh, timely word for the body of Messiah also. Um, <laughs> yeah, just about finished here. And uh, Tuesday, this last Tuesday, was International Women's Day. I don't know if any of you celebrate International Women's Day or do, do anything special. But I thought, you know, it's a good idea to make special days just to celebrate um, Eve and her daughters, to celebrate the women in our lives. Um, the most interesting thing about that is, though, the Jewish people historically have always been pioneers in that area. Um, let's, let's call it women's rights. They've always been pioneers in, in the sense of, like, true biblical women's rights. Um, I'm not talking about pro-choice stuff here, right? But... For instance, in the book of Exodus, it says that if a husband marries a wife, there are certain things that he's obligated to provide for her. He promises to provide for her. You know, like compared to the cultures of the day, that was groundbreaking. Wow. And we see another example of this in the Jewish tradition. We have International Women's Day every Friday evening. You know, when we sit down uh, every Friday evening to our Sabbath evening dinner, and we, the woman lights those those Sabbath candles, and you know her husband prays for her and blesses her and reads Proverbs 31 over her. I mean, this is a beautiful tradition in that we get from the Torah to of, of how to celebrate the women in our lives, how to encourage them and strengthen them and refresh them, etc. And uh, I just thought, man, like people, when people people need to discover this. People need to tap into this. This is awesome. I mean, people think having one day a year to celebrate the women in our lives is a good idea. Man, like, imagine once a week. I'm surprised, like, every single lady and every single church in Prince Albert doesn't want to start celebrating the Sabbath. I mean, you get treated royally every Friday evening. You get a candlelit dinner in time with the family. Who can beat that, eh? So anyway, that's just a little take on that. Um, there's a cool verse about women in this parsha, though. In chapter 38, verse 8, we learn that it was the women's mirrors that were melted down. They had a meltdown, but it was a good one. And uh, it was made to form that, that sink where the priests would wash their hands. And interestingly enough, the priests could look into that sink, and because it was made with that bright mirror-like material, they could see themselves. They could see their images. They could see if there was dirt on their faces, or if they had blood stains on their hand they needed to wash off or whatever. And I wonder if there isn't a deeper picture there of that relationship between man and woman, the relationship between husband and wife. Just like the mirrors that the women donated reflected these guys' faces, could it also be that the women in our lives, in my case Genevieve, will reflect to me how I'm really doing? Maybe if I'm making some really dumb choices. Or maybe if I'm just, I've lost that intimate connection with the Messiah and my heart is getting a little cold, I'm getting a little lost. You know, I, I found that often Genevieve will reflect that to me before I even realize it's happening. And sometimes it's hard, but it's such a blessing. And uh, th- this is like a very ancient concept in the Jewish worldview and understanding of marriage also. I'll, I'll share with you a little Jewish phrase. Um, you know where it talks about like a helper corresponding to him? 
The Hebrew word there is ezer, which means a helper, kenegdo, which is translated corresponding to him, but which literally means, it's the same word for an opponent, someone who's across from you. <laughs> and so the, the Jewish, uh, there's a Mishnaic phrase, which is very succinct in classic Mishnaic fashion from a couple thousand years ago. And I'll, I'll tell it to you in Hebrew. In Hebrew it's like, uh, ezer, okay, zacha, ezer, lo zacha, kenegdo. And what that means is, like when a man is living right, his wife is his helper. When a man isn't living right, his wife is his opponent. <laughs> so I'm, I'm reading a book right now, you know, as a young husband, I'm reading a book right now by an uh, author named Ken Nair. Uh, he's connected with Focus on the Family. And the book is called Understanding the Mind of a Woman. And he goes into some real depth in, on that theme, and I've appreciated it. So I wanted to share that with you guys. I want to end with something concrete here also on a halachic level, which is like our application of God's Word to our lives. Um, in chapter 35, verse 3, it uh, mentions Shabbat, which we happen to be in the midst of right now. And it says, don't light fires on Shabbat. And of course, this has been a big question in the Jewish world for thousands of years. What exactly does that mean? When I flip on a light bulb, does that mean I'm kindling a fire on Shabbat? When I turn my key and start the ignition, does that mean I'm kindling a fire on Shabbat? And some ultra-Orthodox sects would say, yes, it does. So you don't turn on lights on Shabbat. You don't start your vehicle on Shabbat. I, I tend to definitely go towards a more moderate view on that. Um, I'll just give you an interesting example, though, of how a Jewish tradition has come into the Messianic community, and we kind of got the opposite effect of maybe like what the original point was. Um, the Jewish tradition, you use, you'll light two candles before sundown, before the Sabbath begins on Friday evening. And the point of that is to remind you not to light fires on Shabbat. It's kind of like a visible, visible reminder once a week, right? And of course, you know, when we talk about Shabbat, we're not talking about legalistic observance. We're talking about the concept of Messiah inviting his bride on a 24-hour date, a block of time to devote to spending quality time with him, right? So I just want to get that straight for sure. But so, you know, you like the two candles to remind you not to light fires. And that's the Jewish tradition. But often uh, Messianic believers will, will see this and they'll say, well, that's beautiful, candlelit dinner, let's do that. So they'll begin lighting the candles. But often we'll light them after the sun has gone down and after the Sabbath has begun. <laughs> so what you get the effect of is we're lighting these candles you know, after Sabbath's begun to remind us not to light candles after Sabbath's begun. <laughs> it's just a little bit antithetical. And I mean, I'm sure some of us have done that. And that's okay, right? I'm just pointing out for the sake of consistency. You know, if we borrow Jewish traditions, it's a great idea. I love it. But you want to make sure you do it, you know, in a, shall we say, a kosher way. <laughs> yeah, okay. And there's a deeper lesson there. The deeper lesson about not lighting fires on Shabbat is, you know, Shabbat is a day for shalom. It's not a day to let the fires of arguments and debates and things um, flare up in our hearts, as can sometimes happen in a Midrashic context as we uh, discuss scripture. And I think that's a very relevant word to some Messianic communities where scripture discussion becomes these long, drawn-out arguments. <laughs> we don't have that here, so that's not so relevant to us. Thank God. And... So, you know, for a weekly Sabbath, it's preferable not to do food preparation. You want to have all those things done beforehand. And I know that can be hard, especially if you have children. But, you know, so you have that day free for family, for congregation, etc. And then, isn't that nice of God, though, eh? Because, I mean, sometimes you'll have a weekly Sabbath back-to-back with a festival Sabbath. And, like, trying to have all your food ready for two days in a row is tough. Especially if you have eight or ten children, like some of those families I'm sure had. So, that's an excellent observation.
Okay, so we'll finish with one practical thing about Shabbat here. Um, Shabbat is a picture of the gospel, the experience we have in the New Covenant. So when it talks about fires not being lit on Shabbat, this is something that really blesses me. It's a picture of how when we meet Messiah and we experience his ultimate Sabbath in our lives and deep in our souls, we don't have those like base emotions anymore. He gives us rest from those things. He, he releases us. We, we get a rest from like maybe being consumed by anger or being so driven by frustration that we lash out at our loved ones and hurt them, or, you know, all of these, all of these emotions that are so unpleasant and that sometimes overwhelm us. The picture we get of Shabbat is, it's the day when those fires go out. When we meet Messiah, it's the end of those things. Thank God for that. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.